I think we're here. We're here. This is you and I now. We're live. Hello. <laughs> uh, I'm very happy to have Mr. Josh Hansen back on the Bucket Seat Podcast. So welcome. This is the Bucket Seat Podcast episode five. Been really looking forward to this. I've done two since the last time we sat down and did this. One in Tokyo and one here with my good friend Leif Sorensen. So that was the um, How to Start a Dealership episode. Um, I'm sorry you weren't able to make it for that, but I'm so happy to have you back for this. So it's good to be back. Um, welcome again. Um, episode five. So this is going to be the automotive design episode. And we're going to kick it off, though, before we get into um, some of the interesting stuff that we just went and saw uh, and listened to uh, last week. And first, uh, most importantly, I wanted to hear about how your E30 touring is doing these days. An update on living with a classic car. Um, it's been going well, as usual. Uh, it's, as always, a real pleasure to drive absolutely every day. We're reminded of that just, again, leaving work today, driving home. It's an experience every time. <laughs> Part of that experience, though, is... The car has a lot of monitoring lights on it. Basically, every fluid level is monitored by a light. Um, oil lights on right now, but that's okay because we did we we fixed some seals, and I think the the indicators we I know was off. But as a few episodes ago, we had talked about I have had had some coolant issues. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. have replaced uh, replaced the um, radiator um, mm-hmm. as well as other components mm-hmm. of the cooling mm-hmm. system. Have done fixed a bunch of oil leaks, rear main seal, etc. Had done the header where there was coolant leaking into, hot welded that, um, cylinder heads reboard. Everything's running fantastic. Wow. But the coolant light came on. Looked like levels were a little bit low. Given that I have had, I should have known better, given that I have had experience with coolant levels being low, I immediately jumped to the conclusion that there must be something wrong and topped up levels a little bit, being sensitive to the temperature, not waiting to just... Anyways, so what bur- happened? Burped out a little bit of fluid. Okay. Um, because I had overfilled it. Turned out that the monitor, the the light for the mo- the monitor light had come on simply because there was a break in the cable. I'm um, not even a break. Actually, it had become slightly unhooked from the um, sensor. Oh, Plugged okay. it back in. Light went off. Um, so I had slightly overfilled. Um, coolant. Amateur mistake. Should have known better. Everything's all's well that ends well, should be okay. But a reminder, sometimes even sometimes we can be a bit rash, jump to a conclusion, right. assume that there's some a bigger problem than there really is, and sometimes a bit of troubleshooting at the beginning is not a bad idea. Lessons I continue to learn, but otherwise absolutely fantastic. Good, good. And you, new uh, addition to the family? Yeah, new addition to the family. We welcomed a 2015 Subaru XV in my this was the last generation of the XV Crosstrek. Mm. It's now only known as the Crosstrek when they dropped the XV name. What they did do was um, they added eyesight, eyesight technology to this model. Um, this is kind of one of the reasons why I got it. Two cameras, constant monitoring. Uh, it has a ton of different safety features from adaptive cruise, which isn't anything new, uh, to emergency braking and um, collision control or collision avoidance, um, lanesway, lane departure warning, kind of this whole gamut of uh, of different features to help you uh, driving on a regular basis. But what I have found to be the most interesting feature of all of that system is its ability to make in-city 
stop and go traffic driving and even you know uh, highway traffic driving when it's stop and go and incredibly annoying and taxing and stressful and all of those things that i'm so used to having driven a car with a manual transmission and a really heavy clutch for a long time is that you can set it it's um it's it's baseline the lowest that you can set it for is 40 kilometers an hour when you set it for 40 kilometers an hour even in the city if you're only doing three kilometers an hour as long as the vehicle's rolling it will stay engaged so to, for example, uh, if the vehicle in front of you is doing five kilometers an hour, slowly rolling along, it'll keep whatever distance you've set behind it, two or three different car lengths. Uh, actually, I think it's only one or two car lengths, but um, it allows you to s- continually stop and go, stop and go, stop and go without ever touching the brake or the gas. Hmm. And it's a really, really nice experience when you're in the city. And a lot of the driving that I've realized I end up doing, I hate to say that I've chosen the Crosstrek over the WRX recently, but I have been because when I'm in town and I know that that's a, you know, it's going to be a, a, you know, brutal drive. That is one of the most relaxing experiences I've had in a car in a long time. And it's not a luxurious car by any means, but that technology is excellent. And I love it. I came home from, I was heading south on the 400 on a Sunday afternoon, not long ago. And as you know, very well, that is not pleasant driving. No. Um, you know, fifty percent of it's fine. The last fifty percent of it is a ridiculous gridlock uh, <laughs> that just slows everything down yes. to um, a standstill. But with the eyesight engaged, it was awesome. Mm. It was really awesome. So uh, I'm really happy with it. Um, Courtney, my wife, really loves it too. Uh, Magnus loves it, uh, and it looks really great parked beside a WRX. So. It does create quite the quite the family look. Yes, it, does. it does. I, I love it, and uh, you know, I'm still on the fence, but really kind of sliding in the direction of selling. Uh, the WRX will end up going, I'm sure, by midsummer. I'm just trying to prepare it properly, repair the stupid quarter panel that someone opened their door into recently, mm-hmm. and uh, just get it back into great running shape, which it is. But um, I just want to make sure it goes somewhere looking great and in the best condition that's representative of me, of me as an owner. But there is something to be said then in the end for an automatic gearbox in the city at times is a convenience. That it is. Can, yes. It is. Uh, and... This may be the first time I've ever publicly admitted that. So, fair. It's been noted. This is it. This is that moment. So, um, it's funny because when you were talking about the E30 wagon, and as we, as I knew I wanted to get into an episode about design, mm. I had to look it up because I wanted to know who the designer of the E30 uh, BMW was. And also, of course, then who the designer of the, the touring model was, mm. because I know that those were two different people. And so when I looked it up, um, the sedan and the coupe was a gentleman named Klaus Luth. I'm sure I'm butchering his last name. Uh, but then for the 84, 85 generation, uh, the touring was Max Reisbach hmm. with an umlaut over the O. Uh-uh. <laughs> um, but it was it, it was really neat to be able to see that and kind of go back into it because it's, I feel something that I should know as someone who appreciates and loves cars and loves the design of cars. It's knowing designers and knowing who's responsible for design was never something that really came naturally to me. I just knew that I liked something in particular. And that's what I found extremely interesting about going into uh, the, 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 the talk that we went to uh, be a part of. At, it was at University of Toronto Faculty of Music last week. And um, it was a gentleman named Giorgetto Giugiaro. Giorgetto Giugiaro. Yeah, we, we went back and forth a lot on this, yeah. on correct pronunciation. But um, so we went to see him at University of Toronto and um, wasn't really sure what to expect out of all of it. 
But as I'd gone into it, uh, I'd done a little bit of research just on who he was, um, what he was responsible for. I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't really know a lot other no, than Trevor, the DeLorean. No, Trevor, I actually knew all of the vehicles that he was responsible <laughs> You're for. You're <laughs> <laughs> um, But part of the whole thing, as you'll get into, is like the number is what his his the anyways i'll let you continue it's so vast yeah, it's just a, incredible a prolific designer the range um was really incredible and um and, and there's no wonder why he was named the automotive designer uh of the century i believe um not long ago um and so as i started to research more and more about these designers and you know how it all worked you know, I, I imagine there's probably a lot of people that feel the same way or maybe have the same kind of misconception that automotive manufacturers are responsible for their own automotive design. That design then goes into engineering, mm -hmm. engineering into production, production into the, the driveways of yeah. all of us here Entirely today. verticalized, very linear. Right. Yeah. yeah. And what I've realized, I mean, in some cases, that is the, that is the truth. Um, but in a lot of cases and in some really exceptional vehicles, that's not the case at all. And that's the case here where Giorgetto Giugiaro um, has uh, has really made his mark on automotive history and design in particular. So I'm just going to rhyme off a couple of interesting cars. Uh, there are far more than I'm about to, to rhyme off, um, but these are some of the ones that I found particularly interesting. Um, and so he started with Ghia, um, you know, most notably known for the Carmen Ghia through Volkswagen. I'm sure there are a lot of fans of it. I think it's a I think it is a, a terribly, uh, well, that's no, not terribly designed. It, it is an unattractive vehicle in my eyes. Um, and I know that changes for everyone. Then there's, uh, and I'm going to struggle with this name, but Bertone or it's Bertone. And I'm not sure the what latter. the correct pronunciation the is. So Bertone. Okay. Um, and then finally on to, so he spent a couple of years with both of them um, designing for both Alpha. He was designing for Lancia. No, he was designing for Alpha and Fiat during mm -hmm. that time. And, Ironically, during a military service, he was designing for both of them at the same time, which he laughs about as a major conflict of interest. But at the time, he needed to do what he needed to do. Then he moved into Etel Design. So he, he started Etel. Design. He founded it, mm -hmm. and it was it, from what I have uh, found, it was just his name, Jujaro. Um, and his last name, Jujaro, which has now become Etel Design, which is recently they just sold the rest of their stake to Audi in the company Etel Design. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong out there, internet, but that's what I have been led to believe. So just going through, these are in no, by no means a chronological order, but you look at things like the Maserati Ghibli. Uh, now, that's the original, not the, you know, not the one that we see today, which I think is a great, you know, it's a great looking car, not what I would buy, but... Uh, the original, the Ghibli, was beautiful. The Audi 80, the Volkswagen Golf, the Volkswagen Scirocco, that was really something special. Um, and if, you know, for a small vehicle and for something that I think a lot of people probably didn't even you know look twice at, uh, I found the Scirocco to be something that I always sought after. It was mm -hmm. a great car. Uh, the Fiat 850 Spider, then into something that was, um, I guess it found its critical acclaim through Hollywood, which was the Lotus Esprit, the mm -hmm. S1. And for anyone who wants to look that up, just remember the James Bond car, the white Lotus that ended up uh, as a submarine. Uh, so that became very famous and recently just sold to a Canadian. They found it in a garage somewhere. So really? I think that actual prop car for the film ended up in someone's hands here in Canada. Um, the Lancia Delta, the Lancia Delta Integrale, which any car nerd or enthusiast, I, I think, has a lot of love for. Uh, if I could have one of those, I would in a heartbeat. 
uh, onto another very, very famous car made very famous by Hollywood again, which is the DeLorean. Um, and so that's the DMC 12. Uh, there was one at the mm. talk while we were there out in the parking lot that a lot of people got a lot of uh, uh, a lot of photos in front of. Then you moved into something a hell of a lot more recent, which was the Lexus GS. Um, and uh, that car, I think, put Lexus into a very favorable position uh, when it came to uh, competing with the, the Germans uh, on the luxury front in North America. Um, a couple of the others were the Alfa Romeo, uh, the Julia Sprint GT, mm-hmm. you know, just stunning. The Ferrari... 250. This is an important. Also the Brera, the Alpha Brera. Oh, right. Alpha too quickly. Another really not a car that probably went tons of places, right. but a really good looking car. Um, it definitely really drew, at the time it drew my attention definitely to Alpha again. Yeah, I totally missed that one. Um, this is one that I uh, I mistakenly um, attributed to um, Giorgetto, but uh, it, which was the Ferrari 250 GT. I thought that that was his design, but it was not. That was originally designed by someone else, which I can't remember right now. His, though, was the Ferrari GT Bertone Berlinetta Speciale. And so that car, Beautiful. you know, coach built by Bertone when he was there, um, or at least by his firm at that point, which I just saw most recently sold for $16.5 million. The car, not the firm. The car, that's right, <laughs> the car. Uh, what an astonishing number. I mean, really, that's crazy. There aren't a lot of cars that go for that much money. There aren't a lot of things that go for that much money. <laughs> Very good point. Um, then he moved on. I mean, he kind of rushed through a lot of the cars and some of his more recent One work. that also wasn't touched on, the Fiat Panda. Oh, I think right. we may have skipped past that. Fiat Again, Panda. just for its... What, what's interesting, I think one of the things we talked about is that is that sort of spectrum, right? right. From the Maseratis right. to the Panda. And again, one design constraint being sensuality almost. One design constraint being economy. Right, and economy being and able to Yeah, being able to work Very within that super egalitarian like square or pardon me rectangular windscreen versus the just like some there was an alpha concept as well but some of these just flowing dripping designs interesting <laughs> to see that like that spectrum and again that right in enjoying the constraint i think was an interesting yeah you're right that's an extremely important point to make and that's one that he made as well he did um, absolutely no i'm t- i'm entirely parroting thank you for calling me out on that trevor yes absolutely but you're right it was it was a point that he made yeah. and we even talked we were talking again a few people he'd bumped into there. it was perfect yeah. right it's really important and um and i'm glad that you pointed that out too because the way that i think i think that the way that he was kind of describing it was that it, some of those cars were just as important if not more important to his career than you know a 250 gt berlinetta you know, sorry, Bertone, Berlinetta, Speciale. Like, you know, he, it seemed like he almost spent more time uh, on some of those vehicles and some of the funny anecdotes about the build or the process or what it took or the Mm. battle back and forth between design and engineering to make it all happen than he did on, you know, he he just breezed through something like a Lamborghini Gallardo. And in comparison, and it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. But if you think like the impact, how many people's lives impact with, the design of one and and then there's something about like there is something about those objects unto themselves that's really endearing it's approachable and then to think how many people's lives you affect like tens of he's he, I, I believe he went through showed again he went for went through it fairly quickly but showing every golf yeah. and how he'd been like how many golfs 
again, it's inter- the the impact that 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 mass. That's like a Britney Spears song. It, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 very digestible, but it impacts a whole lot of people. Right. Um. Anyways, yeah. Really, I like. Yeah. He. It's. You're right. He almost spent more time talking about those other vehicles than he did. Yeah. Uh, the pandas and, and the girls. I think he had equal passion for those projects mm. too. You could you could hear it in the way that he described some of those projects. Yeah. Uh, the VW Golf being, you know, that was the one that just blew me away. Like, holy shit, that's the that's the man that was responsible for those lines um, that just became such an iconic car in our generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, before our generation even. So, so when he kind of sped up and he ended up going through, yeah, the latter part of his career and what Detail Design was responsible for. I don't know if it was because he wasn't necessarily as in control as he was in his more formative or early years from a design perspective i'm sure the firm was you know enormous at that point or if it was just that he wanted to get to some of the other things that weren't cars and when he got to those other things that weren't cars he started talking about the nikon f body you know the camera body mm. which is still today far well in use and i think it was back in the 70s when he had designed it 70s or 80s I think he designed you're that. right i think it was late 70s he said 77 or something started working with nikon Right. So, I mean, he did that. Um, just looking at my notes, I took so many notes from that as well. Oh, right. The Beretta. Uh, so Beretta, as a, as a gun manufacturer, he had done a handgun, a submachine gun, and a shotgun for them. I think some of the earlier uh, designs for Apple's computer bodies oh yeah also... for, oh, yeah there was one of course you're right again there was one of yeah he didn't show any of those no he did not there was some early bodies um um and then most recently now that his son has gone through his um you know his schooling and now obviously all of the successes that he's had as an architect they were they won the contract to design the juventus soccer stadium i mean what a tribute to italian design and in you know in terms of i mean i'm sure they wouldn't have had anyone other than an italian design the the juventus stadium but still who better than to design it so um really interesting going through what he has kind of taken us through in terms of his journey of cars and i encourage anyone to go back and look at what he's done because it's just it's mind-blowing and he had just he was so full of life too Mm -hmm. and it's important to note that he did his entire presentation in italian which was then translated by his partner beside him Um, on the other side of him was a gentleman named paul deutschman who was the one who also introduced um giorgetto uh to the crowd and for those who don't know and i didn't at the time admittedly either he has a firm called deutschman design um and he's based out of montreal Mm -hmm. in canada um I started looking a little bit more into him and he has a really interesting career in terms of what he's done and what he's been responsible for. Uh, He started with a car called the Zex, Z-E-X, and it was a car built, it was a little coupe built on a Civic platform. Then I'm not exactly sure how it evolved, but um, he made something called the Zex Speedster, which was supposed to be a bit of a, a future look at the design perspective he thought maybe Porsche would take or the design direction that Porsche would take. And he called it the Zex Speedster. And when you take a look at it, I mean, it made the cover of Motor Trend. Um, It made a ton of different, you know, uh, waves in terms of the automotive industry. And it's really, really cool looking. Um, You have to take a look at it. Um, Actually, here, I'll just, I'll bring it up so you can see it now. Um, So when was this from? This was, from what I saw, uh, 80s. 
So between 81 and 90, I couldn't really track down exactly. So the first one was called the Specs um, Elf. And I uh, apologize for the clicking. I mean, it kind of looks a little bit like a Pontiac Fiero it crossed does. with an old MR2 I crossed do. with... I don't know, this front end maybe even looks a There's little a LeBaron. Shit. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You're right. There's a lot of a Fiero sort of look to it. I remember driving over one of those, yeah. Yeah, so that was his first, really. And then these got off of wheels. I hope those were just on a prototype. This makes for great radio when you go through uh, <laughs> visuals. Talking here. about pictures. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I found this. Uh, there's just a site called the All Car Index, and this kind of... Um, this goes through a lot of just automotive history. There's a lot of great pictures on here, but that is the Zex Speedster. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting, yeah. Um, it's very. Uh, it's got a, a clearly a clear face. Definitely has some roundy looks of the late '80s. A late '80s interpretation of round. It, it does, and so do the two gentlemen in there. Yes, and how true. Canadian, but to have a Molson banner in the background of the track. Absolutely. <laughs> it does look a bit Disney Cars-ish. Right, it does. To, it's, to, it's almost like by a caricature of one of the, the new I, Porsches. Yes, a bit. with again those low with that low visor, super low like 3-inch high yes. snowmobile style Yeah, visor. that's the very speedster look. Mm. Um but you know, you really you do see in the rear you see a very wide body. I mean, it's yeah. not like the Porsches of the 80s didn't already have wide body because they did. But the way that he's taken it and really simplified that and completely chopped that entire roof line, yeah. um, I mean, it really simplified it. And I, there's something a little bit playful and a little bit um, comical, I think, about the design itself. Like you said, there is a bit of a cartoonish kind of feel to it, but not necessarily a bad way. No, I should. Yeah, you're right. I should have corrected. Not Definitely not necessarily in a bad way. The gr Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, it was funny, though. So, um, you know, interesting, proud that that is a Canadian design. And so he's now moved on. And he's kind of, uh, I mean, if he ever listens to this, which I'm sure he won't, um, I, I feel like from what I've read and what I've looked at, he's been a bit of the project child of uh, Reeves Callaway, of Callaway mm -hmm. Motors. So legendary um, in the Corvette building uh, and kind of, you know, supercar building world. He was responsible. So Paul Deutschman was responsible for the, um, it started with the C7, C8, C12, C16. But first he did the Sledgehammer. That was kind of its code name, but that was one of the first cars, I believe, to hit 245 miles an hour. So it was all about aerodynamics. And from everything that I've read about him mm -hmm. and I've kind of done some research on, that's really what motivates him is aerodynamics. Um, and so you see that very much in all of his design and his, yeah. his aesthetic. Um, so it's interesting to see that. But then we can really thank Canada, everybody out there, for the T-Rex, <laughs> <laughs> the number of what would have been late 90s, early mm. 2000s rap videos. I might be dating that a little bit um, out of sync, but uh, somewhere around there, the Rough Riders, Jada Kiss. I think he was part of the Rough Riders. This mm. is, We're talking more late 90s. This then, is late 90s, yeah. right? Late 90s. I think in every one of their videos, they had to have a T-Rex. Mm. Um, and so the music world um, and the hip hop culture and motoring in the sense of sports was sorry what are they called now they're called super trikes super that's trikes. what it is super trikes and so it really was he was the godfather of super trikes and that's a very canadian thing so mm -hmm. uh now you know <laughs> two other very notable as we're talking about design when it comes to canadians i think everybody now or at least in the last couple of years has become very accustomed to the the term hellcat and what hellcat has done for the uh, 
domestic market in both you know Canada and the U.S. Most notably in the U.S. For both the Challenger and the Charger Hellcats, you know, seven, I think 770, 707, 770 um, horsepower. It's blasphemy that I don't know that off the top of my head. Um, but that is Mr. Ralph Gilles. And so he is also from Montreal. And he's the head of design for Fiat Chrysler now. Um, he was responsible for the Hellcat and just recently the 2014 Viper SRT. And SRT was the division that he yeah. originally came from. And so he had worked on well, a lot of crazy cars. So, big engine, yeah, fast cars. Big engines, fast cars. Um, and again, thank you, Canada, Montreal. Mm. And lastly, out of the Canadian world, which I, I hope that there are more that I just haven't found yet, um, is Karim Habib. Hab, Habib, And he is um, also from Montreal. Got a mm. bit of a theme going. Uh, he is the head of BMW Design and most recently uh, responsible for the new 7 Series. So there's a lot of really good talent a lot of interesting people that have come from canada that have been responsible for some pretty special cars and some ongoing some pretty special cars that i think deserve a lot more um notoriety and um and respect than they have so far but um i hope that um and i know now having learned a bit more of this myself that i can help to kind of contribute to that because you know, there just hasn't been a lot from an automotive design perspective that, you know, we've been known for. I only mm. ever knew as a kid growing up, my grandfather used to always explain to me because he came from Aurelia, Ontario, was the Tut-Up Carriage. And that was a vehicle that had been built um, in Aurelia. And it was a very, you know, it was it was a carriage, mm. quite literally that. Uh, and I thought that was the only car that had ever been built and designed in Canada. Um, and so uh, knowing this now, I think, pays a bit more of an homage to Canadian design in general from an automotive perspective. And I hope that it continues because, as um, Paul Deutschman said, he's trying to make Montreal a hotbed for automotive design. He hopes that a lot of satellite uh, operations end up starting in Montreal because, as he said, it's that middle ground between Europe and California, which are obviously uh, in incredible uh, hotbeds for automotive design themselves. So, yeah, that's um, that's my ramble on, on Canadian designers and cars and, and kind of, I think, what maybe inspired me as a part of going to the Giorgetto Giugiaro um, talk. And I'm really glad that I did that because I would have never learned all of this otherwise or been so interested to go into it. So we are going to uh, move on to something that you had just shared with me recently mm. that I found fascinating, absolutely fascinating, because it's not every day that you hear stories like this. And I'd like to hear it from you in terms of there's a very special car that had done some very special things. Um, and you were lucky enough to be in the company of someone who was related to that owner and operator. Um, and I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, a good friend uh, was over on Friday um, visiting and brought up that he had just come back from a recent visit to a family member, uh, his uncle, who has a pretty interesting garage. And they had just come... Well, f first of all, the first vehicle we spent some time discussing was the car that he drives in the Mila Milia, um, his Fiat Abarth. Zagato 750 GT. That's yeah, I think that's the one. It is quite a mouthful. Um, a pedigreed car. As you and I were both just learning more um, about that particular race that went from the late 20s to late 50s, 27 to 57. Something yeah, yeah. Like there's, that. I think three decades is you know the the, the lifespan of it in that in its in its original and it's iteration. an original before coming back in the late 70s. Right. But the requirements that we were just looking at is the vehicles that have 
driven in it since in this reincarnation um, have to have been vehicles from the original running of the race during yeah. that period they can't have been built after 57 and they in fact have to have been entered in the race before <laughs> which so is an incredible pedi- incredible yeah. application to be able to drive in the event and then a competitive event at that from there with just some incredible vehicles anyways for north americans an entire other set of provenance and history to each of these vehicles but he went through i guess his uncle owns this v- very specific car which petrolicious has done an episode on yes um that everyone should check out because it's a i mean as all are all of the petrolicious videos um it's beautifully done great storytelling and now he's is he canadian is who is the gentleman who owns good question my friend uh is i'm less certain he's a relative and i think i mean it looked very much like that episode was filmed in california i yeah i believe west coast 100 percent makes sense um yeah that's hard to mistake those yeah yeah, I mean, um, yeah, like as you're looking, like take a look at some of the vehicles that have most recently won the Mille Miglia, Mille Miglia, is that Mille how it's I, you know, my my Italian is is horrible, but um, yeah, some of these cars are just mind numbing to yeah. see that these are vehicles, are vehicles, vehicles, vehicles that are that are fully operational now, running a thousand mile race. Good, yeah, and. They were originally registered and ran in that race. So again, just a great, great to hear. Sort of a again, f- perhaps through one, um, one, one additional layer of separation. But great to hear a story of something that's a really interesting time. Very interesting vehicles, all with interesting pedigrees, all with passionate owner operators. Anyways, really neat experience. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and just a great conversation about cars oh, that's so awesome yeah i'd say anybody listening should definitely go and check out that petrolicious episode it is called just so the fiat aborth is a gato is a mille Emilia marvel a lot of amp, yes so yeah check it out that was most that was posted recently too i mean yeah it was in oh no okay so this was published um back in december 2014 so. he has since run in the race since then as the 200 2015 iteration and now, crazy. as the 2016, I think, has been held already or will be, I'm not exactly confident of the dates. Right. I mean, there isn't a winner posted yet mm-hmm. by the looks of it. But um, To beat last year's 1927 Bugatti. Yeah. The Bugatti T40 from last year, from 2014, it was a Lancia Lambda Tipo 221 Spider. Before that was an, the same gentleman who won in 2015, the Bugatti T40. Uh, the year before that, Alpha 60 1500 Grand Sport Testa Fisa. That was from 1933. Before that, an Aston Martin Le Mans from 1933. Before that, a BMW 328mm Coupe from 1939. And before that, a Bugatti Type 37 from 1927. Hmm. So just so crazy. You've got to think of what would go into the preparation, the maintenance and the ongoing road support that would be required for a race like that. I'd, I'd just love to know more about this. And I mean, I'm, I, I need to actually start doing some research on it beyond this episode because it fascinates me that this race is still run and it's obviously run at such a high caliber. There's clearly a lot of gentlemen and, and hopefully some, some, uh, some ladies in this as well that have run this race that are fairly well off uh, in order to to be able to run this. Okay, was it 1995? There it is, and a bar 750 is a gato. I wonder if that's that was maybe originally... If the, the, a previous owner of the vehicle. It yeah. doesn't have 
it doesn't have a flag beside it. I mean, they yeah. probably, you know, they're going to exclude Canadians from it. <laughs> of course. There's a lot again, of Italian I'm not sure at what point you took possession of the car. I only know it's most, <laughs> more recent history. Um, amazing. Yeah, I, I, this, this whole, the whole idea of this race um, and getting into this is just, I mean, it's so beyond what I'm sure either of us have ever thought we'd ever be able to do or may, may ever do. <laughs> I would love to just do a coast-to-coast road trip in my WRX and be worried <laughs> yes. about its dependability. Yes. Not because it's a Subaru, just because it's a car and you never know what happens with it. Side note. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I think that's kind of of it uh, for episode five. So thank you all for listening. You can find me at thebucketseat.ca. You can just search the Bucket Seat podcast on Google. You'll find us. We're now up on iTunes, which is a great accomplishment. I'm really happy. Although it's not really that difficult. It's just fun to see it up there now. Mm. You can also find me on Twitter um, at The Bucket Seat. That's my handle there. You'll find just sporadic updates and news, mainly just new episodes. And then stay tuned for episode six of The Bucket Seat podcast, uh, where we will be talking to the founder of DriverMod.ca, Philip Oliveira. Uh, really interesting new blog uh, that's kind of popped up in Canada. And uh, we're going to talk to him about what it takes to start a blog as well as his um, kind of trials and tribulations in building a track-ready Miata, which is where I met him at an autocross event. So stay tuned until then. And thanks so much for listening.